0: Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast. I'm Mark Stanley, your host, and today we're going to examine the greatest piece ever written in defense of the freedom of speech. The work we'll be looking at is called On Liberty by John Stuart Mill, a British philosopher who lived in the 1800s and published this work in 1859. The freedom of speech is roughly defined as the right to speak, write, think, and act without fear of being silenced or retaliated against. It is closely related to the freedom of the press and the freedom of religious expression, which are explicitly assumed and connected and considered codependent and equally necessary for free people to enjoy, according to John Stuart Mill. The right to freedom of speech has been under constant assault throughout American history, from controversies about burning the flag to criticizing the war in Vietnam. (laughs) Even John Adams (laughs) tried to oppress people who criticized him uh, when he was the president. Despite the turmoil, it remains one of our most constant and enduring sacred rights, affirmed and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court and in the consciences of everyday Americans and those influenced by Western culture anywhere in the world. Since the Magna Carta, the fully articulated right to freedom of expression, speech, and conduct has been foreshadowed in English common law and continues to have a powerful cascading effect in areas influenced by the British Empire. But every generation faces new threats to the freedom of speech, and ours is no different. Ronald Reagan said that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, which is why it is our duty to be equipped with arguments to defend that freedom from those who would take it away. Thank you again for listening to the well read Christian podcast. If you enjoy our show, please like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter. And most importantly, leave a review on Apple podcasts or Facebook recommends. A sentence or two of positivity and a five-star submission really goes a long way for tech giants who will then promote the material to other potential listeners. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you will find our full catalog of previous episodes, I read all of your comments and reviews, and it's really special to see your feedback. Finally, if you've benefited from the podcast or believe in our mission, you're welcome to make a tax-deductible donation to support our work on our website, wellreadchristian.com. There, you'll find powerful quotes that you won't hear on the podcast, articles written by myself and others, and more. For example, uh, if you go to the webpage for this episode, you'll see all 13 arguments that John Stuart Mill is going to lay out uh, in a brief, summarized, maybe one-sentence form. It'll be really helpful for you, I think. Anyway, I I don't like to ask for money, so I just want to inform you that that is um, something that you are welcome to do if you believe in our mission, uh, because it's, it's actually those donations that can keep the podcast going and enable growth. Before John Stuart Mill gets to arguing for the freedom of speech, he first puts the question in context. What exactly are we talking about? Although it might sound axiomatic and obvious to you, The idea that individuals should be able to freely speak their mind without fear of government or societal retaliation doesn't actually make much sense unless you have some political and philosophical presuppositions in place. If you're going to make the argument that the government shouldn't be allowed to silence or censure you, then first you have to establish what the government can and can't do. And for that, you have to agree on why have a government at all and what the government is you see, the freedom of speech only makes sense on a certain in, in a certain philosophical context. On communism or any collectivist or ancient tribal system of government, the individual doesn't matter. It's only the group that matters. So if you're a danger to the group, you should be removed like a cancer. Mercilessly. That's the Soviet Union or Mao's China or Xi Jinping's China. Or caesar's rome or whatever you're saying something that will lead to the downfall of the group or perhaps more cynically the downfall of the ruling class so you're an enemy of the people and you should be destroyed that's the logic that's communism that's fascism that's tribalism any ideology which puts the the group or the ruling class before the individual will not likely have anything like unqualified freedom of speech so the freedom of speech doesn't make any sense under a full monarchy or a dictatorship. If the ruling class has a right to rule in virtue of their birth or their otherwise accumulated power, then it is in their purview to do whatever they want with their power to make their nation great and get more power. And, and if you're an obstacle to that, then you need to be removed or otherwise silenced. So even if dictators were absolutely benevolent, it would still be their duty to get rid of people who speak out against the good of the group. I want you to understand that even, even if you were really optimistic about the idea of, say, a philosopher king or something, that philosopher king would still have the right to get rid of people who were challenging the status quo. So if you think about it, it's not an accident that the freedom of speech arises in the West as a principle of English common law. It's because only in the West is there this idea that the government should represent the interests of the people, that the people should decide who is in charge, because the legitimacy of the ruler's power is based on the consent of the governed. That's the idea in in the British system. Since all men are equals, we have rights that the government is not allowed to infringe upon, and the government exists to express the interests of the majority. So the question should people be allowed to say what they think is actually reframed in the British system to a question of should the government be allowed to stop them? And that's a big difference. Xi Jinping asks whether people should be allowed to say what they think. But in the West, we ask, should the government be allowed to stop us from saying what we think or doing what we want? The rights are already ours. The question is whether we want to limit ourselves. That's what it means to be free. We don't have a government over us, which tells us what we can or cannot say or can or cannot do. But there are always those who forget the importance of our freedoms or fail to appreciate how important they are. Right now, the assault on the freedom of speech is coming from the left. In the 60s, it came from the right, where some thought we shouldn't be allowed to criticize the war in Vietnam or burn the American flag. The freedom of speech movement at Berkeley successfully woke people up to (laughs) remind them that what it means to be free is that we have these unalienable rights. That it's the government's job to actually protect and not infringe upon. Traditionally, the freedom of speech is something that liberals fight for and conservatives want to put restraints on. But today, it's coming from radical leftists who don't even accept the ideas of European liberalism. They don't agree that human beings are individuals with unique perspectives and inalienable rights. Instead, critical race theorists believe that everything you are is an expression of your race, sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. So it's not a question of whether people should be allowed to say what they think, and it's certainly not a question of whether the government should have the proper authority to stop people from speaking now it's a question of whether people have opinions that are worth sharing or if all language is just a power game in order to boost the standing of your group it's not just a challenge to the notion of free expression it's a challenge to whether such a thing even exists are we individuals who have unique thoughts and perspectives or are we animated puppets of our group identity Are my opinions defined by my superficial qualities as a straight, white, Christian male? Or are my opinions the result of my individual soul who has examined the world with my reason and my experience and come to a unique conclusion? European liberalism says that each of us are unique individuals with unique perspectives that should not be silenced because each of us holds the capacity to be right. And so we have to listen to each other and exchange arguments and allow iron to sharpen iron. But critical race theorists say, no, no, right and wrong is actually all subjective. There's no such thing as truth with a capital T. There's only perspective, your truth and my truth. And that means that the only difference between us is power. And so if you're a straight white male, you don't deserve to speak. Because you're an oppressor who is trying to manipulate people into letting you keep your privileged status. That seems like an evil and cynical perspective to me, but then again, I am that straight white Christian male, aren't I? And it's also fundamentally racist. Because you're saying that people are so radically different based on their skin color that you already know what they're going to say before they say it. And anything they possibly have to say is just an expression of power and an attempt at manipulation. And it's interesting because on this view, if you go against the narrative of your people, then you're a traitor who's been manipulated by the enemy. Black Republicans are traitors manipulated by the enemy. Gay conservatives are traitors manipulated by the enemy. Transgender people who regret their transition are traitors manipulated by the enemy. These people need to be silenced, belittled, ignored, and insulted because they are puppets of the evil straight white male. And that's the narrative of the tolerant left. By definition, racism is putting people in a certain class or categorization based on their superficial qualities rather than their unique personhood. But the contemporary left is fundamentally racist. They no longer believe that we should judge people based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin as Martin Luther King Jr. has argued. The tradition in our civilization is to say that the smallest minority group is the individual. People are not identified by their superficial qualities. Instead, they are created equal and each contain a unique perspective. I don't have the right to silence you because you and I are the same. Westerners have not always lived up to these ideals, but these ideals only exist in history as a result of European liberalism and only now exist in places that have been impacted by European liberalism. The freedom of speech is the exception in world history. It's not the rule. The first chapter in Mill's essay is a reminder of that because the first question he asks is, why does the government exist? And his answer is that government exists to represent the will of the people and to defend our God-given freedoms against both foreign and domestic enemies. And that's a very different answer than if you ask the Romans why the government exists, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or most countries that exist today. Anyway, I don't want to get too far off track here. One last thing on government, society, and European liberalism. John Stuart Mill, in his day, in the 1800s, so that the freedom of speech is not just a duty for the government to uphold for its citizens, but it's a duty that society itself should uphold. If the government doesn't censor people, uh, but the printing presses do, that's suppression of the freedom of speech, and it is our duty as a society to make sure that doesn't happen. If the government has no problem with a certain point of view, but the church is trying to silence a person or ban books, that's suppression of the freedom of speech. Sometimes I hear this line today that the first amendment only applies to censorship from the government. Well, that's true from a legal standpoint, but as a Western democracy, we are not driven by our government. In an important sense, we are the government. And what it means to be free is that the government does not take the lead on making the rules. We take the lead on making the rules. The government follows us and expresses our desires and our interests. That's literally what it means to be free, that our leaders govern based on the consent of the governed. John Stuart Mill spends a lot of time uh, talking about the tyranny of the majority. He says that society has to guard itself from oppressing people before the government even catches up. We can't let the will of the people, even the will of the majority, be a tyranny over others. In fact, Mill says that when society itself is oppressive, it's actually worse than if the government is oppressive. And he cites the French Revolution as our, our our tutor in this. Later on, he says this, quote, "'Society can and does execute its own mandates, "'and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right, "'or any mandates at all, "'and things with which it should not meddle, It practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since, though not usually upheld by such extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself. Protection, therefore, against the tyranny of the magistrate is not enough. There needs protection also against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling, Against the tendency of society to impose, by other means than civil penalties, its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct as those who dissent from them, to fetter the development and, if possible, prevent the formation of any individuality not in harmony with its ways, and compels all characters to fashion themselves upon the model of its own. There is a limit to the legitimate interference of collective opinion with individual independence. And to find that limit and maintain it against encroachment is as indispensable to a good condition of human affairs as protection against political despotism. End quote. Okay, that was a bit of a mouthful. But what Mill is actually saying is that it's more important to maintain diversity of opinion in society than it is to make sure that the government is doing its job in protecting our right to free speech. And here's why what, what I just read was is that if, if the government tries to stamp down dissidents, society can shield them. But when society tries to stamp down dissidents, then God help us all. And that's where I fear that we are today because not enough of us speak up in defense of diversity of opinion today. It's if you disagree with me, it's not just because you're arrogant, it's because you're evil and why should evil people be allowed to speak? <laughs> and when it's not happening to us, we just kind of keep our mouth shut, because after all, it's our job on the line, or whatever. Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about why evil people should be allowed to speak. The first argument that John Stuart Mill puts forward uh, for the reason why the freedom of speech is conducive to human flourishing and is necessary for a healthy and free society is that the freedom of speech is a safeguard against the possibility of being wrong. Because human beings are fallible and we are capable of making mistakes and being mistaken, we have to make sure that we let people who actually might be right speak their mind. Mill says that all of us have experienced what it's like to have an opinion and then later change our minds or decide that we were wrong. That's the human condition. We don't have all the information. And since we're fallible, we must safeguard against the possibility of being wrong By allowing people to disagree. One of the ways you safeguard the truth is by saying, hey, if you disagree with me, I'm not going to kill you or throw you in jail or fire you or try to shut down your business or try to ruin your reputation. Because my opinions are just that. They're my opinions. And I might be wrong, but I don't think that I'm wrong. So let's argue about it and let the best ideas win. Forcing your perspective on everyone else and claiming that you're the sole authority on truth because you're an expert or because you side with the experts or because you hold the majority opinion on XYZ. is just proof that you're arrogant and unwilling to hear the other side of the discussion. Safeguarding the freedom of speech is safeguarding the truth because the truth will only emerge when all perspectives are able to be expressed and voiced and then kind of among the clash of ideas one good idea emerges and the only reason you want to silence that is because you're arrogant and you are afraid of what the truth might be and you are more married to your opinion than the truth the second argument that mill makes i'm condensing a few arguments into one umbrella here is that you can't be sure what the truth is unless you've heard all available perspectives or to put it another way you can't be sure that your view is right unless you've heard the best possible counterarguments to your position and found them unpersuasive. How can you be confident in your opinion unless you know what those who disagree with you would say? As a student of philosophy, a professor once told me uh, something that I also found in John Stuart Mill here, which is that you don't even really get to say that you understand your own view unless you understand the objections to it. Otherwise, You're like a sports fan who insists that your team is the best in the league when the season hasn't even started yet. Until you see your favorite idea or your favorite sports team compete against others, you can't be sure that yours is the best. And your assurance that yours is the best is in direct proportion to how often it's exposed to alternatives and still comes up triumphant. So to carry my sports analogy through, The more frequently a single team can beat their competitors, the more sure we are that that team is the best team at the sport or for players or any athletes at all. And the same goes for ideas too. The more often you test your ideas in the battleground of viable and dangerous alternatives, the more confident that you can be when your ideas come out on top. And your confidence will strengthen or wane in direct proportion to the strength and frequency of the competition. Mill says that if you force one belief system on people, then they're not gonna believe it because it's true. They're gonna believe it because you told them to. They will not have actual knowledge rooted in arguments. Instead, they'll have superstition. And maybe that superstition will, in fact, be true by accident, but they won't believe it because it's true they'll believe it because it's all they've known. And that means their belief system will collapse at the first real objection because they don't have good reasons for their beliefs. They just believed it because you told them to. And this is important to remember when you're raising children or teaching classrooms or running a country, indoctrination is fragile. If you impart your beliefs based on your authority, then when they reject your authority, they will see that their beliefs were not founded on good arguments instead you should give them all of the arguments expose them to alternative views the the reason that that's effective is because that's how knowledge works you can be confident that you're right in proportion to how often you have examined the best alternatives and found them unpersuasive that's how we can be confident in truth because we've heard the alternatives Silencing the alternatives only serves to undermine the confidence in your knowledge. The next argument I want to highlight for Mill has to do with the process of thinking. You see, Mill says that when you're trying to ask complicated or deep questions about anything, science, philosophy, religion, morality, whatever, you, you can't decide that you know your conclusion before you even begin thinking. That would be begging the question, You're assuming your conclusion before stating your premises so if you are seriously thinking about something you have to hold it with an open palm in 2018 dr jordan peterson did an interview with channel 4 news where the interviewer kathy newman asked him a series of really accusatory and manipulative questions it went viral because well it went viral for many reasons but one of the reasons was because of a powerful exchange where newman asked why does your right to freedom of speech trump a transgender person's right not to be offended? And Jordan Peterson gave a phenomenal answer. He said, because in order to think, you have to risk being offensive. And then he went on to say, look, you're certainly willing to risk offending me by asking these forward and intrusive questions. What gives you the right to do that? It's been rather uncomfortable. (laughs) And his point was made. It was a kind of a gotcha moment. What Dr. Peterson said might have come directly from John Stuart Mill. For Mill, the same exact arguments for freedom of thought apply to freedom of speech and for freedom of the press. The arguments are interchangeable. In order to think you have to risk being offensive. That's why the totalitarians always care about your words. Because in order to think you have to use words. And if you can control someone's words, you can control how they think. That's the goal of censorship. You're trying to control words and you're trying to control thoughts. And John Stuart Mill says a free people must have the right to risk thinking for themselves, even though they risk coming to the wrong conclusions. Or if modern sensibilities apply, they must be able to think for themselves, even if they risk being offensive. Because the alternative is more dangerous. A people who don't think are a people who can't speak or write or object or argue or stand up for themselves or do anything. A people who can't think, write, or speak are a people who are slaves to those who can. But what about Kathy Newman's follow-up? Newman pointed out that Dr. Peterson volunteered to come to the studio To be questioned but a transgender person who comes to his class is not volunteering to be put under uh, risk of being offended their conversation got sidetracked because dr peterson never had in fact misgendered a student or mis or 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 used a the the wrong pronoun or whatever Uh, but i want to follow up on that question anyway well what's the difference jordan peterson volunteered to go to the studio and and get grilled in front of uh live tv But a a student who's just going to class, why should they uh, be at risk for being offended? Should your freedom of speech be limited to a certain zone where you can be sure that certain people will not be damaged by the risk of offensive thoughts or ideas? And the answer is, well, hey, why not just call them free thought zones? Does that sound like a good idea? Hey, you're not allowed to think for yourself or present arguments for your views unless you're in a certain zone. A free speech zone is dangerous and evil because what you're really saying is that non-free speech zones are actually conformity by compulsion zones. What you're really saying is this whole campus is an area where you're not allowed to think, speak or write unless you censor yourself. You can't think any risky thoughts. You can't venture out into new territory and try to come up with something new or original or something that's truly yours. Only in this room, in this little area, are you allowed to be free. And that's tyranny. But what about the feelings of those you might offend? Don't they have a right to not be offended? My response is basically to say, no. Where did the right to not be offended come from? What if I told you that your right to not be offended offends me? How are we going to untangle that paradox? The world doesn't orbit around your sensitivities. I mean, what I really want to ask is, who told you that you get to monitor what other people say because of how it makes you feel? Who told you that you get to control what other people think or say? That's despotism, or fascism, or tyranny, or pick your buzzword. What are you, some royal figure who we all have to tiptoe around, lest you throw us to the lions? You don't get to control what we think, You don't get to control what we say. You don't get to control what we print or publish on the internet. That's what it means to be free. So the question of freedom of speech versus freedom not to be offended is just a misunderstanding of what it means to be free. What it means to be free is that you don't get to control what other people think, even if what they think is offensive. The third and final umbrella argument that we're going to talk about today has to do with what Officially trying to silence people actually looks like. John Stuart Mill points out how dangerous it is to uh, sanction the persecution of dissidents, and a dissident is someone who disagrees with the status quo. It is dangerous to persecute people who disagree with you, argues Mill. Trying to shame them, get them fired, make them lose their livelihood, their reputation, their freedom, their property, their their very lives, that's dangerous. First of all, all you're really doing is making people lie about what they really think and not letting those who agree with you think through for themselves in order to truly believe what it is that you're saying in the first place because they have to believe it, and so they don't think it through. And secondly, you just don't know who you're persecuting. The people who killed Socrates thought they were right when they killed the father of Western philosophy. Mill says the people who killed Jesus thought that they were good Sane, moral, prudent people. Even people with the best intentions can accidentally persecute people who really should not have been persecuted. (laughs) And John Stuart Mill says that before Christians get on their high horse and say that they would never have killed Socrates or Jesus, he says it was Christians who refused and turned St. Paul away for weeks, even though he claimed to have had a miraculous conversion. I would quibble with the description of distrustful Christians as persecutors, but whatever. His point is absolutely rock solid. Christians have certainly done their fair share of persecution uh, throughout history, and there's no excuse for it. And at the end of the day, you just don't know who you're persecuting. People who tell the truth are persecuted all the time. And how do you know the person you are persecuting isn't actually in the right This goes back to argument number one. It is supreme arrogance to say that you're right. And anybody who disagreed with you deserves to suffer. History might not look upon you so kindly. It's better to let the marketplace of ideas sort itself out. The good ideas will emerge. The bad ideas will be sifted out. But trying to manage other people's thoughts and expressions is too dangerous. Mill's last warning about persecution is that sometimes it actually works. History tells us that sometimes the truth is effectively stamped out. Appealing to his largely Christian audience, Mill says that Christianity was almost stamped out by the Romans. Mill reminds his Protestant Christian readers in 1800s England that the Reformation was stamped out several times before Luther. John Wycliffe and Jan Hus. Were burned at the stake for heresy hundreds of years before Luther, and their message essentially died before Luther rediscovered it. And in the European battle between Protestants and Catholics, Catholic persecution was effective in Spain, Italy, Flanders, and the Austrian Empire. Heck, it would have been effective in England if Queen Mary had not died, or if Queen Elizabeth didn't hold on to her power. And so silencing people and oppressing dissenters often leads to the destruction of truth. How much pain and death could could be avoided if we just let people be free to speak their minds, which is their God-given right? How much truth have we lost because people in power, uh, those representatives of the majority, supposedly, refuse to tolerate alternative perspectives? John Stuart Mill is not a Christian. He's a utilitarian. And I don't remember if he believes in God, but certainly he lays aside all of those things and just says, look, the truth is a fragile thing. And you should not dare silence people, lest you accidentally silence the truth. One of the arguments today from people who want to retaliate against people they disagree with, perhaps they want to fire their employee or for, for having a controversial opinion or something, they'll say something like, hey, you're free to say whatever you want, but freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. And so you're free to say whatever you want, but you're not free from the consequences that might come from what you say. But think about what that person is saying. What they're saying is, hey, you're free to say whatever you want, but just know that if you say that thing, I'm gonna punish you for it. Of course, speech has consequences. But if you're applying consequences because you don't like the opinion being expressed, that's just you justifying your discrimination of people you don't like based on their views. It's not enough to say, hey, you can say whatever you want. But if you say this, that, and the other thing, then uh, I'm going to fire you. That's not championing free speech exactly. right? Stalin could have said that. <laughs> hey, you say whatever you want. But if you say that, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> If a society is to be free from the tyranny of the majority, says John Stuart Mill, we must not discriminate against one another based on their honestly held convictions. What it means to be free is that there are no unjust punishments for holding unpopular opinions. Now there is some nuance here. Okay, if you are a medical provider, And you swear to uphold that you are going to provide medical care to all human beings, but you don't believe that, say, Asian people are human beings, then you probably shouldn't work in the healthcare industry. But there's a difference between someone's views that directly impedes their job and a view that's just, well, I really don't like that view, and so therefore you can't work here because it's gross, it's disgusting, that's repulsive, That is different. Let me be clear. The freedom of speech does not entail a negation of wisdom. There is still a time and a place for saying things or not saying things. If I walked into a public school library, stood on a desk, and started shouting things about public policy, I can't say that they're suppressing my freedom of speech when they cart me away. That's just stupidity. And John Stuart Mill defends commonsensical guardrails that have been standard in all societies which treasure this right. You can't incite a mob to violence, nor stir a panic that leads to death or great bodily harm. To use John Stuart Mill's example, printing tracks that say that corn dealers starve the poor is fine, but handing those tracks out to a mob outside of the corn dealer's house is different. So I'm not saying that anyone can or should say anything at any time I'm not saying that all opinions are equally true or valid. What I'm saying is that people should be free to express their opinions, regardless of how controversial or audacious it is. And other people should be allowed to respond to them and criticize those arguments and cut them down on the intellectual level. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that every opinion is equally valid, no matter how disgusting it is. Some people are just flat wrong, but what I'm saying is that all opinions are equally worthy to be guarded against censorship, because wrong opinions have to be exposed so that we can all see how wrong they are. We have to be trained in order to guard ourselves against bad ideas. Instead of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, I almost decided to do a podcast on uh, John Milton's Areopagitica, uh, which is... Uh, even earlier. Uh, and, and basically what, what he was arguing um, very early on, uh, as a matter of fact, it might be, might be the first, don't quote me on that, uh, but it might be the first full-blown defense of the freedom of the press. And what he was saying was, look, after the fall, we have to discern for ourselves the difference between right and error. We have to become our own censors. We have to eliminate bad ideas within our own consciences. We cannot rely on external sources anymore, right? We did that and it led to the fall of mankind. And so now each man has to build up his own muscles for detecting lies. And it was beautiful and powerful, but also long and difficult to explain (laughs) and, uh, Offer. John Stuart Mill's arguments are much more modern, much more fluid, uh, much more compelling uh, to those who, even who are not religiously minded. So, if you want the last three arguments uh, and a quick summary of all 13 arguments I found in John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, go to our website, wellreadchristian.com, and find this episode's webpage. If you're interested in more distilled versions of these arguments, for really the clear, written out, just quick summaries, 13 of them, boom, 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 boom. Um, And then the last three arguments that I'm not going to mention here on the podcast, go there and find them. In conclusion, we're living in a world today where a large portion of young people believe that it is morally reprehensible to let, quote unquote, evil people speak. But then they define evil people as those with whom they disagree. Conversely, Mill says that even if all men in the world agreed on something and there was one dissenter, he should not be silenced. Because even the powers of the majority do not have the right to impose their belief system onto even one person. And it is extremely important that we learn and understand and defend the classical conception of the right to freedom of thought, speech, expression, and association, and update the applications of this right in the modern era. Uh, Thomas Sowell uh, said that people today are not learning how to think We're not learning how to combat ideas that we disagree with and having our facts straight and our arguments straight and being able to evaluate opposing perspectives and weigh the alternatives. And that's why when we are exposed to ideas we disagree with, we just get emotional and we mistake our emotions for arguments. I think that Thomas Sowell is absolutely correct and One of the important things that we have to do as a society if we're going to remain free is articulate the importance of arguments and evidence and reason. Because that's how you find truth. And if you're interested in truth, you have to let all sides speak. You have to get the strongest counterarguments to your own view. You have to seek out people who disagree with you and listen to them and read their books and understand their perspective, because that's the foundation of confidence that you have the truth, and that's an expression of humility, because you know that you're fallible. Thank you for listening to the Well-Read Christian Podcast.